Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast in association with EY. Building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. The UK's mini budget of a couple of weeks ago, promising £45 billion of tax cuts funded by borrowings, sent markets into a spin, with sterling and UK bonds being hammered. Britain's new Prime Minister Liz Truss has since done an embarrassing U turn and scrapped plans to cut the top rate of tax. But has it done enough to calm markets? Meanwhile, on this side of the Irish Sea, Q3 exchequer figures once again showed buoyant tax revenues, with another surge in corporation taxes. But the Central Bank of Ireland has warned on inflation and the fact that energy prices are likely to be higher for longer. So what will this mean for interest rates over time and mortgage rates for those looking to buy a house? To discuss these and other issues impacting on the global economy and markets, I'm joined by Joe Gill, Director of Origination and Corporate Broking at Good Buddy Stockbrokers, and Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. I began by asking Joe Gill why markets reacted so negatively to the UK's mini-budget. Well, I think it all took place against the backdrop of a fairly febrile financial market anyway. If you look at where equities have been year-to-date, they're down like 20% of thereabouts. Bond markets have been um, under pressure because of central bank activity uh, around the world raising interest rates. And, and the UK government came in on top of that and kind of poured fuel on the fire by... Uh, making a series of announcements around tax cuts um, that were going to have to be funded out of borrowing and they were betting that growth forecasts would bail them out from all of that. And the market simply didn't buy it. Um, and where that then showed up was in the form of sterling being hammered and UK guilt rates starting to rise pretty significantly. And um, that you know created just more uncertainty in a, in, in a marketplace that's been very volatile all year. Um, and I think the problem for people who are in the markets, whether they're investors or corporates, is the velocity of change is what disturbs them more than the actual price points. So when you see things moving uh, uh, almost violently in a short period of time, that's what spooks an awful lot of people and it also grabs an awful lot of headlines. So I think that's the background to what's happened over the past two weeks. So bear in mind... Sterling is almost back up to where it was pre the mini budget announcement, but the bond market looks still very disturbed and the Bank of England is very active in it. So, Joe, has this U-turn announced last week actually calmed nerves? I think um, it probably has helped a little bit, but there just seems to be so many political agendas in the UK at the moment. And the Bank of England is clearly active in the market and we're not sure how long that's going to last. And if they pull back, what will that do to bonds? All of these things are uncertain. And, and, and as I said, it's all been done against the backdrop of what's happening globally uh, with the dollar, uh, with actions by the US Central Bank and obviously with the geopolitical situation around Ukraine. So like, it's been quite a disturbed environment now for some time. Yeah, a lot of Irish listed companies uh, in the UK and a lot of Irish companies with exposure to the British economy. What was the impact on those uh, on those businesses? Well, there's two sides to it. One is their share prices and one is their actual operational impacts. Um, if you're in a business that's exporting to the UK, you're concerned about sterling being weak against the euro. Um, and on top of that, companies that have operations within the UK, you know, having any thoughts or projections about a recession is clearly troubling for your profits and your earnings forecasts. So 
What's been happening in the stock market over the last 12 months is that um, most of these companies were witnessing significant inflation in the input cost side in the, in, in the second half of 2021. So it, that came to the headlines when you, when you saw central banks starting to move at interest rates earlier this year quite significantly. And central banks are on a campaign now to defuse inflation. And they're doing that by increasing interest rates quite dramatically. That's been reflected in increased bond yields. And it's clear from all of the commentary that the intent here is to slow down the overall economy, if not push it into some sort of a recession. And that has an effect on earnings. So in the stock market, what you've seen is at the back end of 2021, the earnings multiples that were being paid for equities were at multi-year highs. So those have started to unwind as interest rates have gone up. And at the same time, earnings forecasts have come under pressure because of the recessionary recessionary worries in people's minds. So if you're then working in a company, you're looking at a share price that's unraveling through 2022, like the Irish stock market is down 26% this year. Now, to put that in context, if you look at the end of the first half of 2020 to the end of 2021, the Irish stock market is, was actually up 92%. So we've just had a really extreme period of volatility. Uh, the inflation that's in the economy at the moment is partly to do with um, the supply shocks that happened around COVID that are still unravelling. And there's some really interesting stuff going on around that. Like we're seeing headline inflation still that's very, very high. But some of the data points I follow are showing something different right now. For example, deep sea container shipping rates across the Pacific have fallen about 85% since the start of the year. Agricultural commodity prices are back to where they were pre the war in Ukraine. One of the global investment banks said this morning they think car prices are going to have to come down because all of the automakers are seeing deflation in the supply side. So what you're starting to see in real time is the impact of central bank actions on interest rates and what that's done to bond yields is slowing down the economy inexorably. The supply uh, problems that were caused by COVID are unwinding. So you're starting to see supply chains normalize. And all of that in the real world is starting to take the air out of inflation and possibly move us towards a period of deflation, which itself could be a challenge. Cliff Taylor, what's the outlook for the Irish economy? Well, we've seen forecasts from the Central Bank this morning and from the Department of Finance in the budget. And basically the outlook is... Uh, sharp slowdown in, in economic growth heading into next year. The, the department's figures uh, suggest they believe the economy has turned already, uh, certainly in terms of the domestic economy, that activity is slowing, uh, that consumer spending is slowing because of the uh, impact of the energy crisis on people's pockets. Um, there is an expectation that the vast amount of money being thrown into the economy from the budget will might lead to a bit of a bounce over uh, over, over the autumn. Uh, but that heading into next year, you know, the economy will be much slower. I mean, nobody really knows. It's 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 an outlook of of you know enormous uncertainty. Really, you know, we'd hoped for I suppose calmer times heading out of COVID and some a return to some kind of normality uh, and some kind of uh, an ability to forecast what might happen in, in the months ahead. But really, really, it's very unclear. Beyond saying that there's a strong chance that or a certainty, I think the economy is slowing. Will continue to slow heading into next year. Recession is a possibility. Certainly, consumer recession. I think uh, it's always very hard to forecast the impact of the multinationals on GDP figures and the on the top line economic figures. But when you look at the the real economy that people live in, uh, consumer spending, investment by businesses uh, in the domestic economy, 
Uh, you could certainly see some kind of recession, I think, heading into next year. And I think we can just hope that the kind of supports that got us through COVID from the corporate sector, the multinational sector in terms of taxes and in terms of government supports will do the trick again this time. But I suppose unlike COVID, when there was an end point to the lockdowns, we just can't see an end point to this war or what's going on. So it's, it's very hard to forecast. Strong exchequer figures yesterday, Cliff, from the Department of Finance. What did they tell us? Yeah, it's encouraging given the backdrop and given what's going on in European economies in the UK. Now, obviously, the tax receipts are, are backward-looking indicators by their nature, but they are bang up to date as well. Uh, and I think they showed us a few things. One is that uh, multinational corporation tax is just continuing to flow in uh, at an extraordinary rate. Uh, it's If you take it on a 12-month level now, it's £21 billion. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt that the budget forecast for this year is going to be beaten again, uh, that the budget surplus this year is going to be higher uh, than had been expected just a week ago at budget time. Uh, it really is the, you know, the gift that keeps on giving. And I think there are structural things there in the way these companies operate and in the way they write off the investment they, they've made in the economy and in particularly in intellectual property assets that, that could give another boost to that tax head, certainly over the next year or so. The second thing then was that uh, income tax is strong. And, and, and again, we've seen news of job freezes in parts of the tech sector. Obviously, the domestic sector is still under pressure. But for now, anyway, the jobs market is hanging in. And then the VAT figures were strong as well. So despite the fears over consumer spending and retail sales figures, which have been a bit dodgy, there is still strength in consumer spending there. People had a lot of savings built up over COVID. So certainly better off households have a bit of a cushion there and are continuing to spend. I think everyone is expecting a squeeze on their income coming into the autumn, but people are still, for the moment, continuing to spend to some extent anyway. Joe, what's Good Body's advice to clients wondering about where to invest in equities or bonds, or if they should just sit in their hands for now? Well, we, we believe in long-term investing in equities. So, I mean, if you step back from what's happening at the moment, and you, you, both of you guys covered um, uh, the global financial crisis in 08, 09, uh, I think you were both around for the dot-com implosion back in 99, 2000 as well, 9-11. In each case, when you're in the moment, it's fairly chaotic and you feel as if the world's coming to an end, everyone's selling, all stocks are for sale, and it's kind of, oh, let's just give up on this. But if you stand back from it and look at the record over 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, these events actually look like blips in terms of the journey of equities over the longer term. So I strongly feel that um, you've got to stick with it through thick and thin, backing high-quality companies. Now, I define a high-quality company by something that's well-managed, generating cash even in a recession, a balance sheet that's not overly leveraged, and a strong market position. And there are stocks like that in the Irish market. I'm thinking of the likes of CRH, Kerry, Kingspan, Ryanair, and so on. And I'm also a great believer in something called average dollar investing, which means you consistently put money into the market through thick and thin. So... If you do that and you ignore the headlines and you ignore the kind of CNBC, Bloomberg uh, kind of drama that's created around markets, you'll find that if you back these well-managed companies over the long term, they will outperform all other assets. So I'd feel pretty strongly about that in terms of this is another one of those opportunities. So personally, I was investing little bits in the market in the fourth quarter of last year at valuations that were absolutely very high. I'm continuing to invest every month currently, even though the headlines are telling me it's all over for equities, but valuations are actually very low. So over the long term, I'm taking a view that that will pay off and the historic data would show that. In relation to bonds, clearly 
We've had like 30 years, I think, uh, Cliff might know better than me, of bond yields in continuous decline and bond prices going up and up and up. Now that's reversing. Um, I think that's a new trend that will continue for a while. Um, clearly, we don't know what's going to happen with inflation. If this stuff I'm talking about is actually going to continue, we could see inflation peter out or turn into deflation very quickly, in which case central banks will have to go on the back foot. And just as a little insight to that, over the last two days, the US equity markets jumped about 5% because bond markets um, steadied up. And there was a view in the bond market that maybe the interest rate cycle has already, is already getting close to peak. Now, no, no central bank is admitting that, and it may not be the case. But once it does happen that interest rates have topped out and peaked, you could see bond yields rallying. So actually, that's interesting. Um, and also in terms of long-term pension fund management, having a yield on bonds is more normal than having zero interest rates and zero yields on bonds. That that was a kind of a very unusual consequence of firstly, the global financial crisis and secondly, COVID. I don't think we're going back to zero interest rates anytime soon, but I also don't think we're going to interest rates or bond yields of 10%. So it's somewhere between, you know, Two to five percent seems like a more normal long-term place to be. Sure. And what if you're say within ten years to uh, retirement? What should your strategy be in that case? Because you don't have necessarily the long-term view that you're talking about to smooth out these, um, you know, the volatility. Is this a personal question or a <laughs> professional question? <laughs> well, I'm just I'm asking on behalf of Cliff, really. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you're within 10 years of, of, of retiring, first of all, that's great. You have another 10 years of earnings coming. That's very handy. But um, you're, you're, I mean, your investment fund, like, first of all, I hate using the word pensions, right? I keep kind of talking to my nieces and nephews about pensions, and it's like, who brought the pet dinosaur into the room? So it's more about long-term investing. And if you're in the long-term investing game, there's a point in your life cycle where you want to have more certainty over your annual income. So you start shifting the fund towards more bonds. And when you're younger, you have the weighting towards equities because they're more volatile, they're riskier in the short term, but over the long term, they actually beat everything. So if you're within 10 years, you've got to start weighting your, your personal uh, savings towards more fixed income, sovereign type bonds that are safe as houses and can give you an annual income that's safe. Now, if you're in an environment today where you can get those type of bonds that'll give you 4 or 5%, they're certainly a lot more attractive than they were a year ago when they were giving you almost zero. So that's that would that would have an influence on my thinking, um, but I would still continue with equities if you're ten years away from 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 needing to have money without other forms of income. But you're all too young for that anyway. So really, we're talking twenty years, right? We don't have to worry. Yeah, Cliff, uh, Joe mentioned uh, the year of low interest rates there, and it's only a couple of months ago um, that interest rates in the ECB area were were zero effectively. Um, so, but is that era over for good? Yeah, I think it. I think it is. Um... Quick answer, I suppose, Kieran. But as Joe said, it's very hard to see interest rates going back to zero percent or whatever, uh, bar some kind some kind of deflationary catastrophe over the next few years. And I mean, who knows? I suppose. I mean, one of the really interesting things over the last few days or the last week or so, as Joe alluded to, there is this uh, view in markets that maybe the interest rate cycle is may peak out sooner than anyone thought it would. Because of economic growth and because ec- economic growth could be could, could be slowing rapidly, and when economic growth slows rapidly, demand falls. There's less spending, and inflation falls could fall pretty quickly. 
so central banks haven't been caught on the wrong side of the argument earlier in the year, could conceivably be caught on the wrong side of it uh, later in the year as well. I mean, the Fed is is already well ahead of the rest, uh, and some senior Fed figures have been out in the last few days making kind of more, I suppose you'd say, more nuanced noises than they they have been doing uh, earlier in the year when it was all, you know, we'll do what it takes and we'll get inflation down and, you know, we'll do whatever we have to do. So I think they're worried about the real economic situation and possibly also pressures in areas of the financial markets. Um, We saw, for example, in the UK, I know it's a different situation, but fallout in the pension market from, uh, from, from the guilt crisis that nobody had anticipated. I certainly hadn't. Normally higher guilt prices or higher guilt yields, should I say, uh, are good news for defined benefit pension funds in terms of how they value their liabilities and how they report their liabilities. But there was trading going on there um, in terms of derivatives and in terms of protecting, in inverted commas, their position, which led them to face margin calls very quickly as things went wrong in the UK market. And huge amounts of money changed hands. So I think for for those reasons, it's going to be interesting to watch the interest rates markets. Now, obviously, the ECB is behind the curve on this, they see the deposit rate as their kind of key rate, and it's only 0.75%. Uh, that is very low. So we're going to see another chunky increase, I think, at the end of this month. Or not, I think. I think it's inevitable. I'd be very surprised if it wasn't 0.75 uh, of a point at least. Um, and probably they plan to do something similar in December. It could get interesting by then, depending on what's happening with the European economy. But that obviously is a you know, it's going to be a big issue in Ireland as well. It's going to be a big issue for for, for mortgage borrowers. Uh, but I think just as in the States, the question in Europe as well is with recession looming, where where will the interest rate cycle top out and will the ECB be able to increase interest rates as much as they, I think, in the back of their heads? While they say they have no target, and they can't tell us what the target is and they can't give us any indication. There's no doubt that they're, I, th- I think that they're planning to go above 2%, 2, two and a quarter, two and a half percent, you know, it's a long way from where they where we are now to there. Yeah. So, what's that going to mean for mortgage rates, and um, for anybody who's looking to get a home? Because at the moment, you can get a fixed rate in the market, depending on how much you're borrowing and over the period and all of that, uh, between two and three percent from the the high street banks. A bit more now from the non bank lenders because they've moved to increase yeah. their their rates, and I, I suppose they've effectively taken themselves out of the market in some respects. You can still, I mean, you still get a quote for a four year rate, as you say, just over, not far off two percent from AIB and and permanent TSB, depending on various aspects of your finances I, I can't i just can't see that lasting much longer kieran we saw finance ireland one of the non-bank lenders announcing kind of whopping increases in their longer term rates there uh, earlier this week a lot of the other non-bank lenders have moved we have tracker rates now typical tracker rate probably two and a quarter two and a half percent kind of on the the trend the ecb has set out that could be you know four percent by the turn of the year or early next year you know, and, and still, you know, if the ECB is heading higher, st- still heading higher. So, you know, if you look at where we are now after the latest increase and where we might be, that's another kind of 110, 100, 120 euro a month for, for a borrower. And if you go back to July and compare where borrowers, a tracker borrower might be early next year compared to where they were before rates started to increase at all, you could be talking about 250 euro a month. So you're into, when you add that to the energy crisis, you're into pretty chunky numbers. And I think for new borrowers, that is bound to uh, kick on to the to the fixed rates being offered. I I can't see those remaining on the table for much longer. And in fact, for borrow for borrowers who aren't in the in the process already, if you like, given that it takes a 
a few weeks or six weeks to uh, to get through the process, certainly the switching process, uh, those rates may effectively be off the table already because I think they're, I, I, I think they're up. We're, we can't be more than a couple of weeks away, I think, from uh, more significant increases from the big lenders. Maybe, maybe they'll wait for the ECB on October the 24th to see what the next interest rate increase is going to do. But that, that surely has to be the outside of it. Their funding costs, I mean, they have massive deposit bases, which is what's allowed them to hang in for now to, to try and gain market share from the non-bank lenders, I guess, who've been uh, who've been nibbling at their nibbling at their bums over the last couple of years. They're trying to win back share. They have the deposits at very cheap rates to do that for the moment, but you just can't see it lasting uh, lasting for too much longer. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Joe, what's the good body view on, on where the, the, the banks, you know, the likes of Bank of Ireland and, and AIB, who dominate the market here, both listed companies, what's your view on what they'll do on rates? I think we think overall the market rates are on an upward trend. So driven by the ECB, it seems inevitable that if that's going to continue, then it's going to be reflected across the market in terms of mortgage rates one way or the other. It's just a question of how far the ECB going to push things over the next six to nine months. Um, and one of the issues we all have here in terms of predicting the future is that we're kind of victims of conventional wisdoms. So if you go back to this time last year, a conventional wisdom was that Russia would not invade Ukraine. They did, and they caused enormous disturbance to financial markets and commodity markets and inflation. The conventional wisdom right now is the Russia-Ukraine war can't be settled. If it is settled, and it would be a black swan event if it was settled, an awful lot of this stuff would unravel literally within weeks. The energy crisis would unravel. You can already see OPEC are meeting this week to try and cut production to hold up oil prices. That's telling you something. As I mentioned, agricultural commodity prices are back to where they were pre-war. And if those type of things, it's energy and food are the two big pieces of the inflationary pie that matter most for consumers. If those two were to unwind, it allows the ECB and other central banks breathing room to reflect on pushing interest rates much higher and possibly stopping that. And that would be a kind of a more optimistic scenario in 23. But like, as, as I think everyone who looks at it would agree, it's a kind of a mugs game forecasting. We can't forecast tomorrow, not in mind 2023, uh, especially at the moment. So, But it's not, you know, there are reasons why y- y- you could be a little bit optimistic about the way things might travel in 2023 uh, as much as there is to be pessimistic about it. Uh, Cliff, just going back to the switching, interesting, there was a report out this morning from the property website Daft saying that just 1% of people were likely to actually switch their mortgages even though for the vast majority of them, they could save, you know, a chunky sum of money each year if they did switch their rate, uh, potentially with their own lender. They don't necessarily even have to move lender, but most people just won't do it because they either, they don't want the hassle or they feel that they can't break out of their fixed rate, that there'll be some class of a penalty if they do. Yeah, um, I think the figures over the last few months from the BPFI suggest that, you know, there has been a lot of activity in the in the mortgage market and I think inevitably a lot of it has been switching. Um, I think the reason for reluctance uh, among some people on variable rates is prob- probably twofold. One is just, as you say, the hassle. Uh, but the second is that if you talk to brokers, a lot of the people who are still on variable rates 
Uh, there could be maybe 150,000 of them. A lot of them are kind of older people with lower mortgage, lower outstanding mortgages, you know, maybe 80,000, 70,000. And while kind of the sums are very compelling for somebody on a 200 or 250,000 mortgage, they're probably, they're obviously a good deal less compelling for somebody who's kind of, I don't know, 15 years into a 20-year mortgage or whatever and just doesn't want the hassle and reckons that for the few quid a month, it just, it just isn't worth it. Um, certainly talking to brokers, you do get the impression that there have been a lot of switching from two groups. One is more recent variable mortgage rate holders. Not too many of them, because only about 10% of new mortgages now are variable rates. The vast number are fixed. And then there are obviously people who are due to come out of fixed rates shortly who've been looking at their options as well. As you say, there can be barriers there in terms of moving from one bank to the other. Uh, rules have been tightened recently by some of the lenders because of the cost of living going up. That makes it hard to switch lenders. So, you know, there are barriers and, and difficulties there for people in, in, in switching. But I, I think a lot of people have moved ahead of the ahead of the curve, if you like. They've heard the warn, they've heard the drum sounding, and have switched into into better arrangements. You know, I think it's. It's finally given a lot of people the push to move from that variable rate to to a fixed rate because it's just been it's been a no brainer. I mean, fixed rates have been fixed rates with some lenders are up to four percent or more, and you can get a you know four year fixed rate for two percent, a little over. There's literally no downside to that transaction uh, for a borrower. You know, zero. In some cases, they may be tied into arrangements, as you say, with some exit penalties. But even the exit penalties and fixed rates now are a lot less onerous than would have been the case in the past. It's it's been a no brainer. Unfortunately, for I think for people who haven't moved already, it, it may be getting to be too late. But you'd still encourage people to uh, to assess their op- their options and and you know talk to a good broker because there's a lot of twists and turns in mortgages. You really want you want advice that's based on your particular circumstances rather than ge- general advice. I think. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, Cliff, isn't it? In the next uh, sort of year or two, to see how competition plays out in the Irish banking market because Ulster Bank and KBC are now well down the track exiting the market they're not offering new products anymore and um, they're they're warning people that they need to switch their accounts and all of that and we effectively only have three lenders left on the high street if you want to call it that aib bank of ireland and permanent tsb we were told that well we have all these non-bank lenders like avant and ics and finance ireland offering products and they'll bring uh, keen competition to the market but in fact they've been the first ones to move on the interest rates and I, certainly ICS and probably the other two as well, the rates are so high now, they've effectively taken themselves out of the running um, for, for a mortgage with yeah. anyone, you know, unless you're in really dire circumstances, you're not going to take a mortgage with one of those three. Yeah, ICS is, um, effectively seems to have taken itself out of the market. And as you say, the non-bank lenders are, uh, are the, 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 the niche lenders. Um, some of the banking parents are, have certainly adjusted their offers fairly dramatically over the recent months. I mean, I think they have been really important players in the market and they've been important in terms of pushing the big lenders to offer better value, particularly in longer term fixed rate products, which haven't been a feature of the Irish market. You know, we've tended to have two, three, four year fixed rates. Now you can get, you know, we have been able to get 10 year rates or even longer at, at, at kind of what, what, what costs which you could make an argument for, you could say. And in some cases, a very good argument. Um, and some people who will have fixed in with those will be will be very happy now. But there is a question about how that market will develop. I think a lot of it, in terms of the non-bank lenders and what they're at at the moment, reflects what Joe was saying earlier. The extent of the moves in interest rate markets in recent months have been extraordinary. 
And if you're a non-bank lender relying on funding markets, you're going to be nervous now. You're not going to be sure what's going to be happening. You're not going to be sure what rate you're going to be, be able to raise money at next week, never mind next month or next year. So you may be just taking a pause and say, look, we've built up a reasonable business here. We'll mind it. We'll see how things look, you know, in six months or heading into 2023 in terms of rates. So hopefully those lenders can can, can reprice and re-enter the market and continue to push the big players. Because as you say, there's only three. Yeah, Joe Gill, um, what are the key landmarks between here and the end of the year that markets will be looking to? I mean, for example, in the US, we have midterm elections. How, how important are they? And we're looking at more interest rate rises, I presume, from the likes of the ECB, Fed, Bank of England. I think central bank action is the, the main focal point in the near term. What happens in the US? What happens in Europe? What happens in the UK in that regard? Uh, alongside that, politics in the UK is going to continue to be an issue for us over the next one to two months, especially as you get closer to these uh, votes in the House of Commons around this budget. Um, so that's going to be an issue. How the Bank of England behaves once um, this um, bond actions that they're involved in comes to an end, which is due to happen later this month. And then outside of all of that, headline inflation data is going to be really important. And all of the anecdotal information we start to pick up around what's going on with uh, input costs and how is that affecting the way companies are able to reflect that and what they charge consumers. Um, and finally, I think the ongoing you know, daily headlines in the Ukraine are going to be an inevitable overhang on all financial markets for the foreseeable. So that's the kind of lie of the land for the rest of this year. Um, I agree with Cliff that there is a certain amount of post-COVID continuing consumer behaviour that's probably a little bit more exuberant than is warranted by what's actually happening in reality. But I think the way to understand that is that, first of all, savings became so significant through COVID that people still have a material amount of savings in the system that makes them feel comfortable. There's also just a psychological thing of we're still in the wake of COVID and people want to be out, want to take holidays, want to do things that are more normal. So I think that's all going to kind of hit a bit of a wall over the coming weeks as energy bills step up. You're already seeing it in your supermarket bills, you know, in the last couple of weeks in particular. So that's all bearing down on people, especially people on lower income cohorts. Um, and that's 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 uh, a big uh, political challenge. And Cliff, just to close it out, you've been covering gas prices over the last uh, number of months. We're coming into the winter, obviously, when consumption is going to uh, increase. Uh, and a lot of people fearful about uh, the energy bills that are going to be coming through to them from their providers. What's your what's your view on the outlook for gas prices? I wish I knew with my new gear on, I suppose. I mean, it was interesting looking at the Department of Finance's forecasts and, you know, they were saying forecasts for the for the winter and next year obviously depends to a large extent on gas prices, which feed into electricity prices. That depends on the course of the war, completely, un, you know, unpredictable, as Joe said, we you know, we just don't know. And also depends on the European weather over the winter. Uh, and we, you know, bar going up to talk to the postman in Donegal, we really don't have much uh, clue on that either. I guess we can take some small comfort from the trend in gas prices over the last kind of month or so. The big kind of peaks that we saw seem to have eased back a bit. There seems to be a little more hope that Europe can get through this winter in reasonable shape, particularly if the weather isn't too cold. You know, still still a lot of nervousness around about the risk of power cuts. And I think one thing that maybe hasn't been factored into economic forecasts enough is the impact on big companies if they have to stop production for a period of time. Uh, if you kind of consider the amount 
of output that comes from the big pharma and you know ICT manufacturers in Ireland, and take a day a week out of that for 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 a couple of months over the winter, and let's hope it doesn't come to that, you know. But that has a material impact uh, on Ireland's economic figures, just as the tax those companies pay has a material impact on our national finances. That you know they're just huge players in the economy. So you know a lot of uncertainties there. Some better trends recently. People starting to look beyond this winter to next winter and, and worrying about that. But, you know, given the, the level of uncertainties we face, it, there doesn't seem to be a lot, a lot of point in that. I, I think politically we're going to face a difficult period over the next six months as the, uh, as the bills land. And not only the bills, bills in households, but the bills for businesses. You're already seeing kind of a worrying trend of little closures coming in restaurants and hospitality sector and uh, shops, um, you know, you could see that building up. Um, you could see employment in those sectors taking another hit. I mean, how much can those companies take having been through COVID and now facing this? I know they've had huge support from the government, but a lot of them are hanging on by a thread. A lot of the shops are open for it, or the restaurants and coffee shops are open for a few hours a day now. It is, it is, a, it is a vulnerable situation. And uh, I think uh, a few months ahead that are, that are very hard to forecast. Okay, well, there might be run on woolly jumpers uh, for those companies who are selling those. Uh, that might be uh, a good outcome this winter. Uh, Cliff Taylor and Joe Gill, we leave it there. Thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Joe Gill and Cliff Taylor. The show was produced by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.